0: The communion service, uh, the Lord's table, is a transcript that's taken from a period of time in the life of Jesus Christ uh, known as the upper room discourse, upper, upper room conversation. And in that uh, experience, they, those were his most uh, devout and beloved followers. And he had tender words to say to them because he knew he wouldn't be here long. And so, he said these last words. We're looking at 2 Timothy today, and that's his upper room discourse. This is Timothy's last words, because he, or uh, Paul's words to Timothy, and they are his last words because Paul knows he'll be, he'll be taken soon. And there's a clarity that comes to our thinking when we know that we'll die. There's, there's, there's a renewed purpose to love first things first, it's quite often when a person sees the finish line, you might know some family members that have experienced this, they have a, a focused determination to finish well without compromise. Values become vivid. Life, in its brevity, becomes worth sacrificing. <clears throat> we have all of that understanding that Paul has in this second letter to Timothy. And he brings that to us because you and I, fellow ministers, every believer is a minister, we have a tendency of becoming ashamed of the gospel. It's sometimes just hard to say it out loud with words. And sometimes it's just fatigue, and fatigue can make cowards out of all of us. And so Paul writes, Timothy... And he knows this is happening, and he writes Timothy, a young pastor, and he's writing to encourage him, we saw that last week and today, to endure hardship, to endure persecution. And, and it's, he's speaking to him like a weary farmer. You know, you still, you've got to plow. You can't stop that. You have to plant seed. You have to water and whether you believe it or not, no matter how long you've been doing this, there's a harvest coming, and it'll be worth it when it happens. This is 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. This is Paul's great commission. This is his last command to uh, his people that actually comes down to us. This, these first two verses may be the most important pivotal verses in this book of 2 Timothy. The whole book swings on 1 and 2. Chapter uh, 2, verse 1 talks about all of chapter 1. Those things most precious to Paul, and they should be to us, the gospel itself and the doctrines of God that he believes. And verse 2 goes on to say, you need to protect... Per, book chap, I'm sorry, this is hard for me. Chapter 2, verse 2, is going to talk about the rest of the book from now on, and, it's, and the theme of the rest of the book is... Keep that message pure. Do not dilute the teachings that I've given you. Make sure that you protect it with all that you have. And then, in addition to all that, you need to make sure you can pass this on to reliable and dependable people so that they can pass it on to reliable and dependable people so that they can pass it along. And this is of most importance. And that's with that in mind, why don't we read 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, my son, literally my child, that's how affectionate this, affectionate this uh, letter is, you then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust those to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others as well. This is not just the pivot of 2 Timothy where the book swings. This is the pivot to every Christian Every church, every Christian organization, stand strong to orthodox, stand tron- strong to the gospel itself, and give it to other people that are reliable and can give it to other people. These things that I've taught you, you make sure you keep them pure, and then you pass them on to people that can pass them on. What were the things that he had spoken to him in front of many witnesses. I just want to make sure we understand this to be clear. What did Timothy hear? One, well, we can see it in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, remember Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, historical event, a descendant from David. This is my gospel. That's the gospel, which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. God's word is never changed. It is not chained at all. So there were Two things he's talking about, they're general overlapping uh, subjects. The first one is the gospel itself. Paul is saying this is what you have to guard and protect the gospel. That Jesus Christ came in a human form as a descendant of David, that is, that's part of this giant plan that God's had all along. And he came and he gave his life because mankind is so bent and broken that we can't fix this. And so God sent his own son that. Jesus would pay for the crimes that we have committed against God, ourselves, other people, other things of creation. And his death was our fault individually and collectively. And his resurrection was proof that only God's grace can transform a soul. That's the gospel. And the second part, when he says God's word is not changed, I, I, I would say that, that that is, a, again, this overlapping value of what we would consider the fundamentals of the faith, the orthodox Christian views, all of these, not just the gospel, not just orthodox Christian views, the whole the, the, the gospel and those things. And, and so why Paul is so impassioned about this is because this is the pivot of, again, well, let me, not just this book, but all of Christendom. Every church, if you if you look, if you you neglect one of these two things, if you don't protect solid doctrine and the gospel, or if you fail to pass it on, then what happens to the church? It becomes just a kind of a do-good church. You become secularized. You don't bring in anything necessarily special. Oh, sure, you're a compassionate bunch, good for you. But the power is in the gospel. Only grace, only the grace of God transformed, and you take the power away of the gospel, you, you're on your own. And, and if, you look at, if you look at church history, whether denominational or individual church history or all of church history, you can see what happens when, when any one of these people or organizations or churches, they, they don't protect the purity of the gospel and the doctrine, or they don't entrust it to people that can pass it on and they fail to have influence or power, and many times they fail to exist. I would say that these two sentences are not just the hinge of the book, that's pretty obvious, and not just the hinge of Christians and Christianity. I would say it is the hinge of civilization. Because of these two verses, because Paul wrote these 2,000 years ago, and people did protect that doctrine, and they did pass it on to people that could be trusted, and that continued on for two thousand years. Sometimes just a remnant was left, but you and I are here today because of the fulfillment of these two sentences. We're here because Paul gave it to Timothy, and Timothy gave it to someone, and, and it makes it all the way through. And I would say this, the, the reason I say it's the hinge of civilization, there are books written on this. I'm just going to summarize it. Okay? You'll have to kind of trust me here. Everything you and I know, for the most part, of, of compassion organizations or what we would consider education and educational systems and relief organizations and the sanctity of life and justice, those things didn't just get here. Those things are residual consequences of people that believed in the Bible for what it said, protected that, and then they passed it on to people that could be trusted to pass it on to other people. This is everything. And this commission, this great commission, it can't be ignored because all of history has caught up to us. Now it's our turn. Now Paul's writing us and he's saying, look, you, every Christian, it's now it's our turn. You have to stand and defend the the beauty and the purity of the gospel. And you have to make sure that you don't just do that, but you pass it on and, and and train people that are qualified and worthy of passing it on to other people. Every Christian is a farmer. And every Christian is making farmers and training farmers. Because if we don't farm and we don't train farmers, the whole earth starves. That's what this past, those first two sentences are talking about. And this incomparable urgency that Paul has about the gospel and doctrine, why is that? Why is this so important that we would say people and churches and history hinge on this? Romans 1, 16 and 17 summarize this truth. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There it is. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it has the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Here's another reason Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, and the righteousness that is by faith from the first to the last, just as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith." It's always been grace, the grace of God transforms. It's always been that way. Because the grace of God can transform. Nothing else can transform. That's why nothing else does. And when you take the power of the gospel out of some Christian organization, it's just an organization. And you say that about people, and you say that about churches as well. Forgiveness comes through Jesus only. Grace transforms a person, a culture, a world. That's Paul's message here. Now, he's going to answer the bigger question that some of us might be thinking right now. The guarding this doctrine and passing it on to other people, how much is that going to cost me? What will this command require? And he says in verse three I mean, he just starts off by saying, Join with me in my suffering. Well, thanks. Here's a man that knows he's going to die. <laughs> There's no tact. Okay, here, he says this it's going to be suffering all the way to the end because it'll be worth it. That's what Paul says, and he's going to say this by using three different pretty obvious illustrations, not just for the people 2,000 years ago, but for us as well because these pictures still exist today, and we can understand them. I won't uh, elaborate too much, but he's going to pick a soldier and an athlete and a farmer, and all three of these have kind of an umbrella view of long-suffering, dogged persistence because it only works if you're disciplined. It only works if you're long-suffering. These, these Listen, what do you, what do you call uh, a lazy soldier? He's an easy target, right? I mean, it doesn't last long. Uh, an undisciplined athlete? That's a loser. A farmer who likes to sleep in? Starving. So you can't be any three of these in any context of success unless you are long-suffering and disciplined. And so, what Paul's going to do, in light of join with me in my suffering, he's going to use these three stories or examples to say, oh, but there's a there's a specialized kind of suffering that you need to learn how to do. It's a uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a it's a flavor of suffering. And so, the first one he's going to use is a soldier. And so he says like this, suffer to the end like a soldier, and the attribute is single-mindedness. He says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier in Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Pain and discipline in soldiering, sure. It's obvious. It's to be expected. But he's specifically talking here about not entangling yourself in really great things, civilian things. If you want to see an approving face on your commanding officer, you have to stay focused. The point Paul here is saying is, the seasoning here is, Paul is saying, protect your first love. That's what matters. Your highest duty is to Jesus Christ. Let me mention, let me emphasize this. He's not talking about the soldier being disqualified by some act of immorality. This is not an issue of ethics. It's, It's not disqualified, it's distracted. It's the shame of being a distracted soldier because Paul knows this, that good things can become great things. And great things, they can become idols. It's so easy to be entangled in civilian affairs. The primary purpose of a soldier, to be a soldier. And Paul's saying there will be a special kind of suffering where you're going to have to fight off being entangled. And you're going to have to fight for your first love, staying first love. It's not like you're going to become an atheist. No, he'll just slip from that spot. You're going to have to fight for that. I love that he uses the word entangled here. Entangled is one of the words that I've learned to significantly fear in the last 10 years. Jesus talks about, he's telling a story about the different types of souls that are out there that that can hear the truth that comes from the Word of God. And, And the third soil, the third soul he speaks of, he goes, the third soil, soul, is like when the Word of God is thrown on them, They have great soil, but as they start growing right before it's time to bear fruit, the thorns come and choke out all the fruit. And his explanation, he says, well, what's the thorns? It's the deceitfulness of riches and the worries of the world. That's what can entangle you. And the reason it's so frightening is I've seen so many of my mentors and even people I've I've helped bring up and guide them into becoming like Christ in all of life, They've, they've been drowned by the seaweed that pulls them down, and it's, it's powerful because it's subtle, and it's so slow, and, and, and they didn't fight for their first love. It just seemed to just happen to them. The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches those aren't things soldiers concern themselves with. Soldiers are different types of people. Okay, remember last month when uh, the it was a false alarm, but remember the ballistic missiles are coming into Hawaii, right? Did you see photos of that? Did you see video? Because people ran for cover, and they should. Some people ran for their loved ones. I'm going to go home. And then the soldiers they ran to their post because that's what soldiers do. Do they love safety and being undercover? They do. Do they love their family, their wife, their children, their husband? Yes, they do. But their first love is their duty. That's what it means to be a soldier. And and they... They received the approval of their commanding officer. If there was a soldier that said, you know what, let me fill out some... I got some other contracts to fill out first. Or, hey, can I'll be there after I finish washing my car. Hey, can I drive by my house? It's not really on the way, but I just want to say goodbye to my family. They did not receive that greeting from their commanding officer. They were engaging in civilian affairs. They were entangled in that. And, And so... Follow your training. Follow your first love. Be greeted by your commander in an approving way. That's what he says. Not being disqualified by sins, friend. This is talking about being distracted because good things become great things, and they become idols. And look what happens. We've become busy, and we don't even know why. When Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these other things, these civilian things. They will be added to you. Jesus didn't say that just because it's true. It's also the only way that works. It's the easiest way to live. Idols, that first thing, that will find us out. If you can't say no to some promotion or some personal ambition of yours, you are already entangled. If you define yourself by being a mother or some athletic ability or business effectiveness, whatever it might be, you're already entangled. You should be defined by your first love, and you are. In those cases, you're supposed to be defined by the Lord Jesus. And so you, you don't mother with Jesus, you become like Christ in all of your mothering. And it sounds slightly different, but it makes all the difference in the world. It's first things first, and second things and everything else after that. Paul's saying, you're going to have to suffer like a soldier for this one to make sure those first loves get your first alliance. And don't be surprised, he says, it'll be worth it. It'll be worth all the fighting you have to go put yourself through to make sure Christ stays where he belongs, the purity of the gospel and the doctrines, and passing it on, it's going to be hard. It'll be worth it. And why is that? Because the gospel has the power of God for salvation to all who believe, and so it's worth the fight. Next thing he uses is an illustration of an athlete, and he's a different kind of perseverance. He says, endure suffering to the end like an athlete by playing by the rules. Similarly, join with… similarly, that's what, what he means by that is join with me in suffering, carrying it over. Anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. Do you have to suffer discipline and hardship and hard work to be an athlete? Yeah, that goes without saying. This one is specific about ethics. If you want to receive the medal, you have to pl- play according to the rules. This taste is an ethical one. You cannot compromise to win. It means you can't sin and be effective. You must fight on a different battlefront. You have to fight your temptations. And he's trying to tell you it's, it's worth it. <laughs> he's, wait, Like in your Christian life, you you don't want to be this guy. Look, what is he famous for? Winning seven Tour de Frances? No, because he didn't. I've won as many tours as he has. He's he's famous for this for being cruel and vindictive in the way he cheated. That's not the way to run the race. That's not the Christian life he's talking about. And so he's, talk, he's saying here, suffer the gospel like an athlete and put up a fight until the end, and you will, have to, you will have to battle your ego, and you will have to battle your flesh, and you will have to battle the world around you, and, and, it, will, and it will be worth it because you will receive the prize. That's how you receive the prize, by paying, playing according to the rules. This is no small thing. A young pastor had a chance going down the hallway with Billy Graham, and so he asked him, how, Dr. Graham, have you been able to have six decades of effective ministry without falling into moral compromise? And he stopped, and he looked at him, and he said, young man, I live every day afraid because I know who I am. There's an athlete. There's someone that's running the race to win the prize. Buffet your body, it says. Buffet your body. Know you're bent. Be self-aware. Know you're bent. Keep the bent in the cage. You don't take the bent for a walk when you're off traveling on business by yourself. That The more it roars, the less you feed it. Starve it. To death, there'll be no death. Just keep it hungry. Buffet, it means to beat into submission. Your ego, it means the vanity and the conceitedness and the pride and the coveting, right? The lying, the cheating, those sorts of things. You have to have war with that to play according to the rules, not just your body and not just your ego, but you have to buffet the world around you. Those are the sources of temptation, right? The world around us is so corrupt. But I've learned something. Listen, I've come up. If you don't play the game, you can't lose to the game. Keeping up with the Joneses? Never met her. Don't even play. That's what he's saying. He says this. You want the prize? Beware the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, And the pride of life. You want to learn something? Learn from real athletes on how to suffer. Learn from people that know what it's like when your body says one thing and your soul says something else. I will continue. I will not stop. Be in your place, flesh, and do what you're told. You run through the pain. You crawl through the throwing up. You tell it the way it's going to be. You'll quit when it's time to quit. You are present in the struggle. You're drinking in the moment. You do not compromise. I will not be touched. I will not be helped. I would rather crawl across this finish line than be helped and cheat. You run the race and you run the race for honor, the honor of being a minister, the honor of being able to compete. You run the race for the king, and you play by the rules, no matter how much it costs. Face plant on asphalt, bloody knees, so that you will win the crown. And this lady, when she ran the Austin Marathon, was leading for 23 miles, and you saw how she finished. The organizer of that event doubled her winnings. She still plays third because he'd never seen anything so heroic. The prize. And why would a person do all that suffering as to an athlete and buffet his body and buffet his ego and not play the games of the world? Here's why. Because it says, because the gospel... In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteousness that has always been from faith to faith. The righteous man must live by faith. We have a soldier, we have an athlete, now we have a farmer. The farmer says, endure suffering with me to the end of constant toil. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive his share of the crops. The point is, farmers never get a break. This is like a, a dense summary of the pass, maybe the whole passage itself, but the farmer is relentlessly pursuing this because he must all the time, every year. What is he doing? He's protecting the gospel, the purity of doctrine, and he's training other people that are dependable to train other people that are dependable so that he will have the first of the harvest. That's what the farmer does. The next sentence tells us what to do. Verse 7, reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into this. Well, let's do what we're told. Let's reflect on this. Paul says we're going to suffer. Yep, and we should learn from the soldier and the athlete and the farmer. What are we supposed to learn? Do you want to finish well? Two things. One, you decide ahead of time. If you haven't decided when the suffering comes, you're done. You decide now. Suffer all the way to the finish. Look what, he's, <laughs> look what Paul says. He's, he's, he's efficient, if nothing else. Verse 312, he says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So there. Resolve this. Decide this ahead of time. Disciple, to be a disciple, to become like Christ in all of life, is suffering, is persecution there. Now, I won't be surprised. I'll just live with that. One, decide now you'll suffer to the end. Why? Second thing, why? The why will drive the will. You have to know what motivates you to be able to get you through the dark times. And he says, he gives multiple reasons, but here he is in the very next verse. Verse 10, he says, therefore, I ensure everyone, I endure, I'm sorry, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's saying, look, I'm I'm going through all of this. It's short period, it's temporal. I know it's somewhat civilian because I've kept my eye on like a soldier on the prize. And I'm doing this, for future believers in Jesus Christ. Paul is doing all of this so that you and I can be here today. It's not about us, it's about this new group. This protection of the purity of doctrine, the passing it on to other people, he does that so that all of us us could enjoy this. What motivates Paul? The smile on the commander's face because he did not get distracted and he kept his first love all the way to the end. The crown on his head because he competed like an athlete that plays by the rules, like a farmer who did not grow weary in doing good. And because of the power of the gospel, it has the power to transform. It's through the gospel that we understand that righteousness comes by faith in in grace. Paul's great commission is this. You be the farmer. Find a farmer. God bless the farmer.
1: And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker, so God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board, so God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die, then dry his eyes and say, maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay wire feed sacks and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40 hour week by Tuesday noon and then painting from tractor back put in another 72 hours, so God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadow lark. So God made a farmer. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners, somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed and rake and disk and plow and plant and tie the fleece and strain the milk. Somebody who'd bale a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says that he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. So God made a farmer.
0: God made you, and he made you a follower of Jesus Christ. He wants you to be the farmer. He wants you to work hard to protect the dignity and the purity of the gospel and the orthodox beliefs that are found in the Bible, and he wants you to find another farmer, someone that you can entrust with the precious beauty of the truths that we know are true that are found in the Bible, and that person could find a future farmer. It's great dignity that God sees in us that he would bestow this kind of responsibility on us. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we are grateful that trustworthy men and women have carried this great thing the gospel and the doctrines of what we call orthodoxy into our lives. They have kept it pure and clean and undiluted. They, are, they have suffered various persecutions for us. And now, 20 centuries later, This passage is to be obeyed by the people that are listening now. Let me ask you, have you fallen? Have you grown weary in doing good? Have you been distracted? Let's change that. How about now? The righteous man falls seven times, and then he rises again, so get up. For the gospel, get up. For the future elect, get up. Endure much suffering. It's our turn. Let's become like Christ in all of life, and let's take as many with us as we can. Get up. Keep plowing, keep planting, keep watering. There's a harvest coming if we do not grow weary in doing good. There's a crown that awaits us. There's a king that would like to smile upon us for being fully devoted and undistracted with his love towards us. Lord, let us be that kind of church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.